Exit light into night. Take my hand. We're off to talking bollocks land. Yes, we are indeed. Welcome, my fellow bollockers. Um, good day. It is a bollocast of the highest proportions. Today it is a, a writer special. Yeah, another one. Um, this is a, this is a very special one actually. This is to mark um, the uh, well the, uh, the launch of a book um, from the thirty three and a third series called the Black Album. Um, as I'm sure you've already read, you know you've downloaded this. Whatever this is an interview with David uh, Maschiotra, who I actually met uh, via well through email. Uh, via DX Dave Ferris who wrote the 33 and a third uh, Rain and Blood book so a nice little bit of symmetry there and you know how I like my symmetry um, and yeah that's where we're at um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you all the details on uh, how to get the book and everything later um, although you can uh, tweet them at 33 and a third basically you need to go on to Amazon anywhere like that and just put in um, 33 and a third or black album 33 and a third and you'll soon fight it uh, fight it find it um this is a really interesting chat that david and i had a couple of weeks ago um fascinating guy um um uh, and, and you know a, a published author um and um very knowledgeable man on many many subjects um and uh, I, yeah it was just a, a really cool chat really enjoyed catching up with him um and I'm, you, know, you will be able to find it uh, you can go to his website David Maschiotra that's David and uh, M-A-S-C-I-O-T-R-A dot com I will give that out later and he's also at Facebook on that that same name um as I said, really cool guy, and we had uh, we had a really nice chat. And um, there's there's no real need for much of an intro here because um, this is what it's all about. It's a black album special. Um, whether you like it or not, you're going to hear some interesting stuff um, about the band. I meant whether you like it or not, as in the album or not. You're going to hear some interesting stuff here. Um, David's really done his done his research, done it, uh, and done the interviews. So um, sit back, relax, and chill out with David and I talking about uh, the black album, how it's recorded where it's at now, and, um, yeah, everything that went on around it. So, enjoy. Hello, Dave. Hello, David. Hi, how are you? I am very well. How are you? Great, great. Thank you for uh, having me on your program. Oh man, no, absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for coming on, and apologies for the um, the slight confusion there. I, I saw on your um, your Skype profile that you were in Indiana, so I stupidly um, checked on the search engine what time it was in Indiana, and it said it was twenty past eleven. And I thought, oh no, I've I've messed up the hours. Oh no, I'm I am in Indiana, but I'm very close to Chicago. I'm I'm about furthest north west that you can go in the state so i'm in the central time zone right okay cool right okay well so anyway well look we, we finally made it that's the main thing yeah and thank you for your patience with me i'm sorry that i had to uh, duck out at the last minute on wednesday oh no not not a problem man not at all i mean this is this is a this is a, a rare um a rare opportunity i'm um i you know i'm really excited to talk to you about um uh, about this book and um, i just say so you know um i i we are recording we've started you know, we, we've already started um and um uh it's a podcast you can swear you can say whatever you like um 
there 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 is no there are no lawyers listening um oh, great <laughs> so um uh in the spirit of true disclosure um i uh yeah uh, uh dave for, for regular listeners that would be dear dx ferris um put us in put us in touch with each other um and um i i, I think your book came out was it three days ago yes uh well two days ago it was uh thursday right okay um and that uh, and and that is just titled metallica metallica right it's part of uh bloomsbury's uh much valued and vaunted uh thirty three and a third series yes for, yeah for anyone unfamiliar each book chronicles one record and uh, mine is on metallica's self titled record uh, better known in some circles as the black album yeah um and that's i mean th- th- basically this uh this this podcast is going to be a black album special so we're going to dedicate it to um this entire uh, this entire conversation that that we're going to have because um obviously um i think really if to to use the term game changer i mean it it's it's basically the dictionary definition of a of, of a game changing album really oh absolutely uh history making groundbreaking record uh it it was when Metallica uh, claimed and earned their status as royal ambassadors to the world uh, for heavy and hard music. And it was really a cultural album, to use uh, Bob Rock's expression, Bob Rock, who produced the record. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Told, told me when we talked that it was a cultural album, and I like that turn of phrase. Cultural album is one that not only impacts and influences its genre but transcends the boundaries and borders of its particular genre to have some measurable influence and impact on all of music culture and there's a significant and strong case to make that Metallica's uh, self-titled record the Black Album did indeed accomplish just that. Uh, yeah, I I I, I would uh, agree entirely with that. I mean, I think it, uh, as you said, you know, it crosses it crosses music musical cultures. I mean, I saw um, I saw the band when they were playing um, Jules Holland's show over here, which is a you know a live show with all musicians from different bands all playing their tunes and stuff. And Metall- yeah, that's an excellent show. I, I I get it here on a channel. Oh, cool! I'm watching it all the time. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, it is and. Um, uh, Metallica have been on there a few times. The last time they were on there, well, it was for Lulu, but we'll skip over that. Um, but before that, it was for um, Death Magnetic, and um, and they, and they obviously they played uh, they played Enter Sandman, uh, and you could see all of the musicians in all of the other bands, ranging from skiffle to funk to you know you you name it. You could see them all mal- singing along. You know, oh, it, it's oh. just it's just it just covers everything, really. Right, and that that riff uh, is is hard and heavy, but it has a a great sexual rhythm to it, which connects it to uh, rock and roll's origins and rock and roll history. And yeah, it's probably the only heavy metal song. And some people uh, would would use this as a strike against it that you could play at a a wedding reception and and the you know the the women there would stay on the dance floor and, and keep moving but that's, that's how yeah. rock and roll started i mean elvis presley and little richard and jerry lee lewis 
It was about rebellion and revolt and defiance and buoyancy, but it was also about getting the girls to have a good time and, and partying and, and all of that. So, uh, And, of course, heavy metal springs out of rock and roll. So these connections are stronger than some people would like to imagine. Um, did, did you find, when you were talking to the band, did you find that there was, there was any of that kind of subtext in the back of their minds when they were putting the album together or...? Or, or, or not? Yeah, there absolutely was, and that, that was what made it really interesting for me to converse with the members of the band, but also to write the book, is that it enabled me to write the book as a love letter to heavy metal, hard rock, and rock and roll. Uh, they had just gotten off touring behind And Justice For All, and they had begun to believe that they had taken progressivism uh, as far as they could take it, that they were beginning to reach a dead end. And James Hetfield, in my conversation with him, explained that as frontman, lead singer, cheerleader of the band, he felt this distance between his delivery of the music and the audience reception of the music because he was, he was spending all this time on stage trying to engage the crowd in eight, nine-minute songs, and there was a disconnect there. So they made the deliberate decision to simplify. And by simplify, they didn't mean soften, and they didn't mean dull. They just meant simplify. So they started to look at some of their hard rock influences, like the Rolling Stones and ACDC and Aerosmith and some punk rock influences like the Ramones and the Misfits. So there was this lineage, this ancestry that they began to uh, investigate and explore and they started to find ingredients from all their different influences from the 70s and the 80s and find ways to drop them into this intoxicating hard rock heavy metal tonic and of course the entire world ends up getting drunk on it. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a very beautifully put. So, so do you think it was um, it, it it signified um, a widening of the influences um, uh, on on their music, as in previous albums, it, they they'd very much channeled their their metal influences, whereas they allowed they allowed their their other wider influences to come into the the, the songwriting when it came to the Black Album. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it, and it addresses this uh, specious and uh, unconvincing charge, slanderous charge, that Metallica sold out with the Black Album. Uh, in the records prior to the release of the Black Album, they were very much making music in the heavy metal genre and style, a style of thrash metal that they helped define and create. Yeah, but you can hear traces of that hard rock edge uh, in some of the early work. I mean, a song like "Seek and Destroy" uh, is a song that Metallica themselves referenced continually when they were making the Black Album. "For Whom the Bell Tolls" is another one. And it's not; those songs aren't that far removed from Led Zeppelin, AC/DC, Aerosmith, Deep Purple. But what they did is they really went back to their youth, their childhood, before the new wave of British heavy metal uh, made them all fall in love and lose their minds uh, in the best possible way. And they, they went back to the records and the bands that they loved 
as teenagers. And for James Hetfield, that was Aerosmith. He had a poster of Aerosmith on his wall in his childhood bedroom. For Lars Ulrich, that was Deep Purple. Deep Purple was his favorite band, and Made in Japan was his favorite record, that classic live Deep Purple uh, record. Uh, for Kirk Hammond, it was uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, and also Deep Purple, and UFO. So they really did go back to their childhood and uh, begin to reawaken, revitalize, resurrect uh, what made them first fall in love with the, with the beautiful rebellion and revolt of rock and roll and hard rock. And, and do you think, this, was, was, this a, was this a process that they just kind of, they, they felt themselves? Was this a conversation they had with management? Was this a conscious, oh, let's all go and listen to, you know, that, that stuff that got us excited back in the day and, you know, and then come and try and bring that energy to writing the next album? You know, were you able to find any of that out? Yeah, well, uh, as I said, they did begin to feel that the, the music was getting a little too complex yeah. and, and a little too far removed from the garage, yeah, no, so, I, I get that. I was just wondering whether there was actually, whether it was specifically it was within the band that these conversations were had or whether it involved management as well or, or both. Um, the way that I got the story, it was, it was within the band and the, the pivotal conversation took place uh, in a Canadian stadium after they opened for Aerosmith and they, they con- convened a meeting uh, while Aerosmith was playing their set in what Lars Ulrich called the bowels of the stadium, and they could hear some of the Aerosmith uh, performance drifting down into their little area, and they were strategizing on how what approach they would take with the next record, and that's when they discussed the Rolling Stones and the Misfits and uh, Led Zeppelin and all of those bands. And then uh, when they enlisted Bob Rock's support, uh, they already had... Uh, demos recorded of the songs, the basic tracks. So there's some people who think, well, Bob Rock came along and he pushed them in that direction because he had produced Aerosmith and he produced Bon Jovi and Motley Crue. But they already had the demos recorded. So he just he just put his flavor on it and helped make it as powerful and, and big and bold as it could possibly be. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny because when you when you look back now and you think, and you know, just the discussion we've had already about where the band were coming from, um, it really was just hand in glove. It was the perfect producer to pick for mm-hmm. for where they were at and what they wanted to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. They and they originally wanted to enlist him only as the engineer of the record. Uh, James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich still wanted to handle the production by themselves, but they liked the work that Rock did with Aerosmith, and they liked the work that Rock did with The Cult. Uh, excellent band, fantastic. Uh, but Bob Rock, he had attended a live Metallica performance, and he thought that the live performance was so muscular, yet their studio sound, especially on the Justice record, uh, suffered from infirmity. So Rock uh, boldly, with, with a bit of arrogance, said, I don't want to mix the record, I want to produce it. Yeah. And uh, Lars Ulrich said that you know they were a little taken aback 
by Rock's boldness, but the more they thought about it, they thought that it was it was time to allow someone to challenge them. And that's exactly what happened, because uh, yeah. Bob Rock liked Metallica, but he wasn't in awe of them. So he yeah. had some critical distance. Well, that that was the that that was the fir- that was the the first of many times that he was going to take them aback with his cockiness, mm-hmm. um, and um, and yeah, as, as you rightly said, he well basically he wasn't in the camp, was he? You know, they they'd worked with Fleming Rasmussen and and they they developed a kind of you know a sort of Metallica camp as regards making albums, and the whole Mike Clink thing didn't work on on Justice, so. So, yeah, going into this, it really was a case of, right, they really, they really are going in and doing something different because they've basically got a producer who is going to sit there and is going to say, that's not good enough, go away, do better. Right, and he, there were some crucial moments in which he did that, and he, he provided the perspective of an outsider, which is always valuable in yeah. any creative process. You know, he told James Hetfield that, he heard a better singer within him uh, waiting to be born rather than just someone screaming in key. And uh, Hetfield rose to the challenge, rose to the occasion. Uh, He got Hetfield to open up a little bit and start writing more personal lyrics uh, rather than depending on depiction of fantasy or complicated story. Uh, Songs like Ride the Lightning. Yeah, or commenting on society, always, or basically, right. basically, always taking that that brilliant sort of critical lyrical ability that he has, and sort of turning it inward instead of outward all the time. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you see this this move, this transformation from the lyrics of "Injustice for All," which I find uh, to use the word you just used, a brilliant and and powerful and forceful, uh, but is really like you could write those lyrics if you have. Hetfield's talent and imagination after watching uh, CNN or reading the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, but on the Black Album, James Hetfield's writing songs about the death of his mother, uh, his romantic relationships, things like that. And he's managing to do it with the same acidic edge that he brought to earlier records, uh, but it has that intimacy that makes it so unique and simultaneously profound. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, I mean, yeah, it it is a it is a noticeable difference. Um, and um, but also, and we were, sorry, go on. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We were talking no. about influences. Yeah. Earlier, um, it's interesting. Hetfield said in our conversation that he really turned to punk rock uh, when he decided to start writing more personal lyrics because he thought you take a song like "Ride the Lightning." What is that about at its core? It's about fear. It's about anger within the structure under the umbrella of a story about an innocent, falsely accused man facing the electric chair. Well, why not just write a song about fear and anger like punk rock lyricists do? Just express what you're feeling directly. Yeah. And then Bob Rock told me that he got James Hetfield to listen to... uh, Beatles records and John Lennon solo records because he thought that John Lennon would be a great influence on Hetfield because Hetfield was always so precise in his lyricism and he wanted Hetfield to see the power of subtlety. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. And he thought that uh, John Lennon was a master of that particular style. So perhaps an unlikely influence for a heavy metal songwriter 
but John Lennon played an important part in the process. Yeah, so basically a, a little more carrot and a little less stick. Do you see what I mean? It's like, you know, a, a little more subtlety and a, and, and a, um, a little less aggression, if you like, but you, but you can still make the point. Oh, there he goes. Um, maybe he did know what I meant. Oh, signal is horrendous. Uh -huh. Hi, Howard. I, I think we might have had some technical difficulties. Yeah, yeah. I think we definitely did. Yeah, um, yeah. Don't worry. We're we're back online. So, um, well, well, actually, the question I asked just before um uh, we lost the connection was um, so from a lyrical point of view, what um what Bob Rock seemed to be trying to encourage Hetfield to do was um well basically um uh the phrase I used was um a little more carrot and a little less stick. Yeah. Uh, a, a bit more subtlety and a little less kind of just brutal kind of anger. Right. Did you, I'm, I'm not sure when we got cut off. Did you hear me talk about John Lennon? Um, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, okay. And, and yeah, and, and, and Bob sort of bringing that into the equation for, yeah. um, well, if you look at, if you look at the song, enter Sandman, which we just talked about earlier, uh, originally that, well, this, the song is about crib death. And originally, Hetfield told the story with the precision that he had used as an instrument of blunt force on previous records. So instead of off to Never Never Land, for example, the lyric was uh, destroy the perfect family. And uh, it wasn't only Bob Rock, but it was uh, Kirk Hammett and Lars who were disappointed with those lyrics because they thought that the song as we were discussing earlier, had such a great soul groove in addition to this heaviness, uh, and that's a Kirk Hammett phrase, soul groove, that these precise lyrics telling this complicated narrative almost undermined that musical effect. So uh, Bob Rock was the one who had the, uh, the job of relaying that message to Hetfield because at the time they had a rule that... Criticism could only come through a mediator. Wow! So right, couldn't so, criticize Hetfield directly. Right, Hetfield, so so even so, back even back then, um, we had we had the beginnings of the um, communication issues, which were going to come to a head on Saint Anger, of course. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's. It seems like it's it's an unhealthy way to work if you're a band trying to collaborate in a creative process that <laughs> the drummer yeah. can't directly give feedback to the singer or the singer can't direct give direct feedback to the bassist. You have to go through this messenger at all times. Uh, it worked on the Black Album, but yeah, as you just said, eventually it would catch up to them and... Uh, do some damage yeah well it, it, have a policy like that is unsustainable simple as that you know you right. can't you can't operate a, you can't operate what is essentially a um a collective by yeah. by by having no communication and appointing somebody as a as a go-between for personal relationships right exactly um, yeah that, that's... i'm getting married in a couple of weeks i might try that with my wife <laughs> <laughs> So we'll see how that works out. Let's do a part two, and I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah, I can just imagine that on the honeymoon. Yeah, I can just imagine that on your honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> Tell my new wife I would like to sleep with her now. 
Uh, that, that's cool. Well, and congratulations, by the way. Um, oh, thank uh, you very much. Uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Um, how how long ago were um, were were all these um, interviews? I mean, did, were you able to do them as a batch, or, or or was it you know bits and pieces over time? Did you meet the band, or was it skyping? Uh, all of the interviews took place over the phone, and uh, they all took place a little over a year ago. Uh, last summer, while Metallica was on tour in Western Europe, uh, I spoke with them over the phone. And I spoke with each band member twice. And I did uh, long single conversations with uh, Newstead and Bob Rock. Yeah. I was just, well. I, that that was that was my next question because we've mentioned the band and we well we've talked about the band loosely and we've mentioned everybody but Jason so far. So um, so 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 how was he? Was he easy to get hold of? And and how was the um, how was the how was chatting with Jason? Uh, chatting with Jason was a was a fantastic experience. Uh, he's really almost like an evangelist for heavy metal. I mean, he was yeah. practically shouting on the phone, and I love the passion and the avidity. Uh, it's something, I wish he could inject some of that energy into American culture, because right now, American <laughs> culture suffers from a deficit of avidity. Oh, d- uh, oh d- don't worry, Donald Trump's going to sort all that out for you. Oh, right. <laughs> I love talking to people like you from more sophisticated parts of the planet, and <laughs> Having to represent this laughing stock nation, uh, but anyway, uh, that aside, uh, I think Jason was a little reticent to do the interview because I reached out to his publicist and with the interview request, and I didn't receive any response. And then I sent a follow up, which also went ignored. And then uh, once I had confirmation of participation from every other member of the band I let Newstead's publicist know and just essentially said listen his perspective is essential I I would really like to talk to him and if he doesn't do it he's going to be the only one not on the record in this book and then I got a response almost within the hour uh, confirming his participation so I think he was waiting to see who else was going to go along but all of that reticence evaporated instantly when we got on the phone. Uh, he was so passionate and, like all the members of the band, very gracious with his time and also very insightful. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unfo- I think he's a great loss to the metal community at the moment. I know he did, um, he did the Newstead band and he was all over social media and, um, and, and gigging and everything and then just all of a sudden just ducked away again and he seems to have gone back to being... Um, uh, a bit of a recluse uh, again, which is a shame. I mean, I hope he's working on something, but um, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it's funny. You should sort everybody that I know. I know quite a few people who are um, are friendly with Jason, and um, everybody always says, you know, what a what a what a great guy he is, and what a passionate guy he is about music and about metal. Um, it's just it's a shame that he's not kind of you know at the forefront of the scene. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think he's a bit of a loss. Right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and one of the things that I found so interesting about speaking to him and refreshing is that uh, at the start of the interview, he took me by surprise by asking me uh, a series of questions about me and my work, and it's rare that interview subjects do that. 
Yeah. Uh, so so that showed me that he has a very generous spirit. Um, but yeah, he has a he has a really insightful perspective on heavy metal. He he gave me a phrase that was really useful in the book's conclusion: uh, "Heavy equals happy." And he talked about how you know because heavy metal has such an inseparable attachment to defiance and revolt and rebellion that you're confronting the uh, tragedies and traumas of life, the dread and the despair, uh, but you're doing it in this heavy fashion that it's almost amplification of the middle finger, heavy equals happy. And uh, I found I found close connection there with the philosophy of Albert Camus. So the introduction and conclusion of this book uh, both bring in Camus and his definition of rebellion as the violent denunciation of hypocrisy. Right. Okay. So, um, so Jason's take, but it, it sounds like Jason's take on um, uh, on the album was it slightly different to the to the others, or were they all on the same page? They were all they were all pretty much the same page. Uh, you know, Kirk Hammett talked about how it's uh, an expression of freedom and uh, living a life in refusal of dictation. Whereas Lars Ulrich, he was more open-minded about it, I guess. He said that, you know, if you line 20 Metallica fans up against the wall, they're all going to give you a different interpretation, and he doesn't want to prioritize or, or value one of those interpretations over the other, because when he himself, as a music listener or as an art collector, uh, receives a work of art, he doesn't want the creator telling him how to receive it. He wants to have the ability to interpret as he sees fit. So, uh, yeah, there there, spe- there speaks a man who was raised in a European art house bohemian uh, background. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. Right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was it was interesting having those conversations and 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 getting those those various perspectives. And I think another just to switch the topic. Uh, quickly to go back to our earlier conversation about Jason Newstead and and so how planets aligned to give this album its sound. Yeah, uh, you know the tragedy of Cliff Burton's death uh, brings Jason Newstead into the band, and I think Jason Newstead, as he offered uh, his simpler style of playing the bass, uh, just slapping on it. Uh, served this rock and roll influence in the Black Album much better than Cliff Burton's uh, classical influence would have served it. So that's another ingredient uh, essential to the to the tonic. Yeah, yeah, and also it, was, it would be the first album you'd actually be able to hear Jason on as well. Right. Oh, yeah, and that played a big part of our conversation. Uh, Newstead was much more gracious about that than I expected, but maybe it's because so much time has elapsed. Yeah, definitely. Time heals all wounds. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he made, a, he made a fascinating point about the Justice record. He said that it's with its primitive production, it was really a heavy metal precursor to uh, the Black Keys and Jack White. Uh, just... <laughs> With you know the guitars at two hundred miles per hour, it's almost like an R.L. Burnside record today, and I found that very interesting because then I went back and listened to the Justice record, 
and I could see what he was saying, just guitars and drums in a basement, a little thin, rat-a-tat-tat, but a lot of energy. Yeah. Uh, and I asked Jason if he's heard this uh, bootleg that's available, uh, and Justice for Jason, in which somebody's turned the bass up in the mix. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he told me that some of his, actually some teenagers who lived down the street from him uh, brought it to him one day. And uh, his exact words when I asked him what he thought of it was, giant fucking fantastical. (laughs) That's my new favorite expression, giant fucking fantastical. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so he he, he finally has justice. (laughs) Right, exactly. Oh, dear me. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. So, of course... um, I mean, he 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 got a, he got a couple of riffs on there, but it was still mainly the kind of the Hetfield and Ulrich bandwagon with a little bit of Kurt's riffs thrown in there as well. Um, did they did they you know did they actually go into um, or were you able to sort of find out more about the um, um, how the songs were written, as in um, you know how they were pieced together? Were they, were they put together any differently to the way that they used to you know that they'd written before? Um, i.e. in groups or bringing things to, you know, to jam on? Um, was the approach any different? I, it sounded like they they followed the formula and, and stuck to the format that they had used with previous records, which is uh, James and, and James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich do the majority of the writing, uh, but what will happen when Kirk makes a contribution or when... Uh, Newstead makes a contribution in the case of My Friend of Misery. It's typically on a tape. They record a riff, uh, like Kirk recorded the Sandman riff, and, and Newstead recorded the uh, bass riff for My Friend of Misery. And then Hetfield and Ulrich take that element and add all of their creativity on top of it. Uh, and that's pretty much how it works. They're the, the creative band leaders. The one exception to that, uh, which I'm sure everybody knows, is Nothing Else Matters. Yeah. Uh, Hetfield wrote entirely by himself and really played almost all the parts on it uh, in his hotel room and recorded a demo of it and never had any intention of it becoming a Metallica song, but he played it for Lars and Lars was uh, so flabbergasted and impressed by it that uh, it was his insistence uh, that made it a Metallica song. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, it, it's no secret, as you've already mentioned there before, I, I guess L- Lars has probably, um, uh, well, has always been sort of very progressive. And and they, I don't know, there, was, there always seemed to me like um, with Lars, there always seemed to be a, a competitive edge as well, where it's like we've constantly got to be, um, reimagining ourselves, we've constantly be, be got to stay one step ahead of the pack, as it were. Um, uh, I mean, do you think? Do you think any? Do you think that kind of um, fed into the Black Album at all, or was it purely they wanted to get out of the straitjacket of their own making? Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I do think that there was some. I mean, Metallica commercial consideration. Metallica had always joked about uh, 
living out a quest for world domination. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think they knew that they could continue making records like the the classic unassailable first four and have a huge following and be titans and giants of heavy metal. But there's there's a certain commercialism that separates Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, for example. And with the Black Album, they went from Black Sabbath territory to Led Zeppelin territory. I think that was part of it. I also think that, uh, you know, they had already started talking about establishing some distance from the thrash genre on Ride the Lightning with Fade to Black. So I think that there was always this desire to escape the straitjacket, as you just eloquently put it. And you even see some of that come into play with the cover art. I mean, Lars Ulrich said that he wanted to get as far the fuck away as possible as cover art with skulls and swamps and demons and everything else that some of the other big four bands were using. Yeah. Uh, and you see it with lyrics, too. You know, James Hetfield discussed uh, how he didn't want to write lyrics any longer about, and he never did to a large extent like uh, Slayer, or other bands, but about Satan or blood or things of that nature. He wanted to separate Metallica lyrically yeah. from other bands. So there was that uh, lone wolf desire that was certainly an influence, along with this quest for world domination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned there the. I mean, when you spoke to um, when you spoke to Bob Rock as well. Um, I mean, it's a long time, obviously, since um, uh, since they, you know, they were all in a room putting that album together and everything else. Um, and um, I'd be interested to to find out what it was like talking to um, talking to Mister Rock and um, and and his kind of you know feelings about it all those years ago, um, because there was definitely, I mean, you you know, we've all seen the making of videos and stuff like that, and there's you know a few VH1 specials and we all know that there was some there was some classic sort of headbutting moments where you know there were clashes right. um uh but obviously you know when you when you're working on a project everybody's pointing in the same direction and and you know if you if everybody's you know fighting but all fighting to go in the right direction then it, it, it's all good um but it, 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 there was obviously a culture shock for Metallica dealing with Bob Rock. Was there a was there a culture shock in reverse as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, there there certainly was, and and Rock was to my surprise. Before I get to the substance of your question, Rock was very excited and eager to discuss the Black Album. I oh, that's I cool. That's good. Yes. Yeah. right. I assumed wrongfully that he might have grown tired of it by now because he's produced countless records, but he's always going to be most closely associated with the Black Album, and I thought maybe he was sick of that, but not at all. He was very excited and eager to tell the stories. No, I, well, I, I, I thought there might be a case as well. Mind you, uh, you know, I, th I, think, <laughs> I think if you'd been interviewing him about St. Anger, it might have been a shorter interview. Yes, uh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't have had as, nearly as many questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, what were you thinking? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, what were you thinking and that fucking drum sound? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but so, yeah, so he was he was keen to talk about it. That's awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful surprise. But when you talk about the the culture shock, I mean, uh, he was the one most uh, vital and valuable in amplifying Jason Newstead's bass. And he also taught Newstead how to play bass uh, in different ways because essentially before that, Newstead was just playing the guitar part on a bass. And yeah. uh, Rock taught uh, both Newstead and encouraged Lars to play the drums and the bass to establish the foundation to make the guitar riffs sound bigger, to push them out rather than try to mimic them. And uh, Lars was very much influenced by Phil Rudd of ACDC uh, in his quest to accomplish that. But Newstead hated Rock. When Rock first walked in the room, in the words of Bob Rock, he said, I was the new guy who worked with Loverboy and Motley Crue, so Jason thought I was a piece of shit. And uh, Rock had to really work hard to prove himself. Uh, same thing with Hetfield. You know, you've got this new guy saying, I think you can be a better singer, and I think you can be a better uh, lyric lyricist. And there was a big clash there at first. And then there were some specific agreements that, or disagreements rather, that never went Rock's way. Like, it was Bob Rock's idea to provide some orchestration on Nothing Else Matters. And uh, he got Michael Kamen, who of course conducted the San Francisco uh, symphony orchestra on SNM with Metallica yeah. to uh, do that, to compose that music. And Bob Rock said when he first played it, he was in tears. He thought it was so beautiful, and Metallica just hated it. And that's why it's so low in the mix that you can barely hear it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Bob Rock argued very strongly for it, but the, he's working for a band, and the band is Metallica, and they had veto power. But I think, as we were saying earlier, the collision of some of their different sensibilities of some of their different beliefs and styles uh, led to the creative explosion of the Black Album because yeah, oftentimes absolutely. people work best under challenging conditions. The best art comes from struggle. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, like you said, it, it, it's well as, as a as a as an old manager of my, my old band used to say to me. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's better when the pots and pans fly. <laughs> right. you know so because yeah it people if pe people get a chance to get off their chest what their problem is or where they're coming from mm -hmm. or what they that that's when you know it's not just one person getting it off their chest but all everybody else gets to hear it and you might find that some agree and some disagree or some see see the very same issue but see it a completely different way and and it's it, it, it yeah just sound cheesy and like a counselor but it's it's all about communication right right and then when you talk about struggle i mean ernest hemingway put it brilliantly as he did many things uh he said writing is easy for me all i do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed uh, <laughs> and then the song on the black album the the closing song on the record, The Struggle Within, is about that very thing. It, it started out very literal. Uh, James Hetfield was uh, literally struggling to write the lyrics of the song, and therefore he called it The Struggle Within, and it refers to 
uh, the, the struggle of creativity and the struggle of artistry. Yeah. Um, which obviously he was um, right in the middle of with uh, with that particular album because mm-hmm. I, I, it was very it was it was a very demanding time for him as well because he was he was obviously changing or well changing or, or, or learning a completely different style of writing lyrics but a, but a completely different way of delivering them as well. That's I mean it's a it, it is kind of like it's it's almost sort of Hetfield's album really, isn't it? Yeah, you know, uh, Dave Marsh who is a uh, pretty established rock and roll critic. I have mixed feelings about him, uh, but he's Bruce Springsteen's biographer, and and he makes a very interesting point that rock and roll is really a singer's medium, even though there's so much emphasis on the guitar. uh, If you go back to the genesis of rock and roll, it was all about the singer, really. Elvis, Little Richard, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins... And it continues to be for a very long time. And the Black Album becomes more rock and roll. And as you put it, it becomes more of a singer's medium for Metallica. Uh, And James Hetfield, I'm sure people have seen this in the making of video, but the book goes into greater detail. Uh, He records the vocal parts for that record, uh, not with headphones, but in a large room surrounded by speakers so that it encouraged a more nuanced, melodic, and improvisational singing style. And they stopped doubling, too, uh, to provide more nuance and melody and even soul in the voice. Uh, Hetfield became kind of a soulful shouter on this record. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely, the big there's a there's a big difference. I mean, as a as a as a I was going to say singer, but as a vocalist myself, um, the 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 difference between um, Justice and the Black Album is is just night and fucking day, because you you have got that soulful, um, I mean that that soulful kind of voice. The only person in metal at the time who had a similar kind of sort of soulful delivery would have been Jeff Tate, um, yeah, and. Um, and and you can hear on Justice, there's so much harmonizer on the um, on the vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's there, you, you can tell that they're basically there's they're they're trying to make the vocals sound bigger than they are, whereas on the Black Album, they just they just are. Right, you know? right. And that's an excellent way of, of of putting it. And then you know I don't know if this will cause uh, all of your listeners to shut off the podcast immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually like the load and reload records, and uh, Hetfield continued to develop that singing style on those records, and there are some really dynamic vocal performances on those records as well. So you you really see him grow into a singer, uh, not yeah. just a screamer, and that is something unique in the heavy metal genre. Others have done it, as you mentioned, Jeff Tate and others, but uh, he was a real pioneer and groundbreaker. Absolutely, in, in, in which case, quick question, slightly off topic, but quick question. Quick question. Um, so, death, death magnetic, step backwards or step forwards? I think that it's a, it's more, it's certainly more of a step backwards because it's they return to the. Uh, well, that's a, you raise an interesting philosophical question. Uh, you know, T. S. Eliot has that great quote about. Uh, spending adulthood on a journey to get back to the place where you started. So yeah. I, 
I suppose if Death Magnetic was a record with the quality of Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets, which I don't believe it is, although I do like the record, you could say that it was a step forward. It's a step backward in the sense that they returned to their thrash style. They returned to a more primitive production style. But if they continue to develop and, and reach that same level of energy, which is really difficult to do, uh, we can maybe see it as a step forward. I think that's that's a question to be determined. We'll yeah. have to see what happens next. Yeah, no, I agree. Because for me, I think it's um, I think it has a a number of kind of there's Death Magnetic reminds me of of of, of all Metallica albums. It reminds me of Injustice for All. Um, the day that never comes is kind of like one, um, you know, which which is not a. Which is no great observation. A lot of people have made that observation, but there's you know there's the unfor there's another unforgiven on there, and um, which obviously wasn't on justice. But I I just kind of for me just the way the 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 kind of product the production as well it harks back to justice for me, um, and yeah. I, I think there's quite a few parallels between those two albums. Which of course, <laughs> which means that we do we do we do a black album next. But uh, I don't think <laughs> I don't think we'll be getting one of those. No, yeah, and you know there's. I think there's some weak parts of Death Magnetic, but uh, Broken, Beaten, and Scarred, The Day That Never Comes, All Nightmare Long, and Cyanide, those songs in sequence have a tremendous amount of energy and yeah. velocity and intensity, and that, that middle portion of the record uh, is just really uh, forceful. And yeah. a, I mean, that's I really hope that they're able to capture that kind of quality on their next record but only sustain it throughout the entire record uh, no i agree i agree i think it's um I, that, that's a phenomenal bunch of songs and um i've mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've rediscovered the uh, the unforgiven three recently actually which is um which is an incredibly beautiful um song um and and very 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 touching um and and lyrically um probably as um uh, as as deep as Hetfield's gone into the relationship with well his ex relationship with alcohol and his current relationship with with his wife, um, but it's yeah I mean it's it's all yeah I'm I'm I'm, I'm hopeful of the uh, of the next album but um, you know we'll have to wait and see we'll have to wait and see yeah and Kirk Hammett's uh, guitar solo on the Unforgiven Three is absolutely oh, ferocious yeah that's one of the highlights of the record right there yeah I agree. It it is. It just comes searing out of the song. It's just incredible. It reminds me. It's it's almost like it's like driving on a little country road, which which would be the equivalent of the rest of the song. And then you come over the brow of a hill, and there's a skyscraper just you know looms up at you. It's right. it, yeah, it's it, it's incredible the way that that solo just takes off. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. It's uh, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Um, so, have you got? So, what, what, um, what projects have you got um, uh, planned? I mean, obviously, this is something that's been a, a real labour of love and taken a, a, a lot of your time. Um, uh, any, anything else planned within the world of metal, or are you? Um, is that is that you for now? I, I would like to return to the world of metal uh, with future projects, but right now. I'm working about working on something about higher education in America. <laughs> right, okay. Which, which is a total disaster. I was going to say higher education in America. That would be a great idea. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how that goes. 
I'm, once I finish writing that book, I'm sure that I'll be ready to return to heavy metal because I'll want to uh, break shit. So I'll need a soundtrack <laughs> to do it, and heavy metal would be perfect for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, I mean, this is... Um... Uh, presumably, once you've got now you've got this book under your belt, and it being such a such a a big um, project and such a, a a big book, if you will, um, hopefully that will that will give you a um, that will give you a kind of uh, a, um, a way in with with other bands and and not just necessarily kind of you know documenting albums, but um, getting under the skin of a few more other bands. Yeah, I would certainly love to do that, and I've been really uh, immensely enjoying um, my conversations and my encounters with uh, some other heavy metal uh, journalists and writers, people like yourself. This has been a t fantastic dialogue. And like DX Ferris, uh, yeah. whose books on Slayer are second to none. Yeah, they're awesome. It, it is a great person. Uh, so, yeah, I'm... I'm having a ball doing this. I loved writing the book, and I'm I'm loving uh, this rollout. Oh, that's really cool. Um, and and one question I'm keen to ask is: there is a danger that when you go this far down the rabbit hole, that you see behind the curtain, you see everything working, and the magic of the Black Album is forever spoiled for you. Um, you know, was there a danger of that going in? Did that happen, or did the reverse happen? And you actually, you actually found, you know, some stories in there that you weren't aware of that made it even, you know, even even more sacred. Uh, in this case, it was it was the latter. I, I've uh, fallen deeper in love with the record. Uh, years ago, I, I did some writing on Bruce Springsteen, and uh, for people who are jolted by that contrast. I wrote an essay on uh, how I made the transition from Heartland Rock to Heavy Metal uh, at 33sound.com. I encourage people to read it. Uh, but with Springsteen, I lost the magic. The more I found out about it, the more uh, pedestrian and, and mundane it became to me. But with this record, uh, it was really about tracing those influences and training my ear to hear those influences even more than I already did. And because I also love Aerosmith, because I also love ACDC, because I also love Motorhead, and I also love punk rock, to see how the band brought all of those elements together in this combustible chemistry uh, only ignited my passion for the record even more than it already had been. Oh, that's cool. That's cool because there, there is always that danger that, as you found with Springsteen, that it mm -hmm. it, it 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 doesn't work out like that. Um, and and obviously you had you had chance to speak to everybody. You spoke to the band members, well, the three existing band members from from that album twice. Mm -hmm. um, when you went back a second time, was was that to pick up? Was that to kind of di dive deeper on things they said the first time? Or, or did you now have sort of new questions that you wanted to ask based on what you'd already discussed? It was a combination of both. And I have to say, I mean, at the risk of sounding a little precious because I, I love the band and I, and I wrote this book about them uh, and I, I don't want to sound too sycophantic, but they were very gracious with their time on the phone and all of them uh, volunteered 
at the end of the conversation uh, to follow up with a second call. They said, you know, if you have any more questions or if any more questions should occur to you, uh, you know, please get in touch with us and we'll be more than happy to speak again. So that was a delightful surprise and uh, it gave me the chance to do both of, of what you just enumerated. I was able to uh, ask follow-up questions and dive deeper into some of the topics we had previously discussed and I was able to formulate some new questions. Was there, was there anything that... Um, like, well, that, for example, just, I'm yeah. sorry to... Yeah, no, no, go for it, go for it. The way that the second call was able to work out so well is that uh, Hetfield and I, for example, we got riffing on his lyrics, and I was asking all kinds of questions, and he was giving very interesting and insightful answers. And I'm the kind of interviewer, I like to let a conversation develop. I'll go into it with a list of pre-planned questions, but the more conversational, typically the more fruitful. And yeah. uh, we just we stayed on his lyrics for so long that I wasn't able to ask the questions I wanted to ask about uh, his guitar riffs. And of course, he's a riff master. Yeah. So had we not had that second conversation, it would have felt very incomplete. Yeah, yeah, and, and well, yeah, because that's you're essentially interviewing two people, aren't you? You're interviewing you're interviewing the guitarist and you're interviewing the singer. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And was there was there any um, was there anything any questions that um, that people were not so keen to ask, or any avenues that you went down that that there was roadblocks put up? No, not not really. Uh, they were all pretty open, and most of my questions were about the music and the creative process and the artistry. I didn't ask any personal questions. I mean, I, I did ask both Newstead and Bob Rock if they harbored any bitterness or resentment about their departure from the, from the band, and uh, both of them said no. Uh, whether that was entirely sincere or not, I wasn't able to tell uh, but also as we said earlier time heals all wounds so if there was some resentment at one point uh, maybe it is now dissipated yeah yeah I mean well like you said it's 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 a long time um, and you've got to be you've got to be some you've got to be some kind of person to be able to stay mad for 20 years 25 years right right uh, Mustaine comes to mind <laughs> yeah he does doesn't he well, he's found he's found Jesus now, so maybe he's, uh, I don't know, more merciful or something. Yeah, yeah, he's he found Jesus, or did he just find a, a, a you know a um, an overtly Christian wife? I don't know. Um, right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, one of my favorite writers from your country, uh, Christopher Hitchens. I remember once speaking about uh, President Bush's. Uh, conversion to Christianity, another American genius in league with Trump, uh, <laughs> said uh, George Bush gave up Jesus, gave up, excuse me, George Bush gave up Jack Daniels for Jesus. I certainly wouldn't make that trade. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, um, there, there, what was that? Um, uh, there, I think it's a Clement Freud um, quote. Um, if I could be assured of the afterlife, I would gladly give up this one for cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
There's that old, uh, the phrase found Jesus, there's that old Robin Williams joke. He said that uh, when evangelists would come to his door, uh, he would see them coming from across the street. He would immediately take off all of his clothes and he'd answer the door. And when they say, have you found Jesus? He would say, no, come on in. Let, help me look for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, well, you're, you're on very... Um... You're on, you're on great territory with me because I'm. I've spent the last fifteen years doing stand up, and uh, and Robin was my uh, was was one of my very first inspirations. Um. So so yeah, he's a he's a I I, I know I know that joke well. Um. And he yeah he was an utter genius that guy. Yeah, he was a genius and a giant, and it was a really sad loss when he took his own life. Well, yeah, and we lost we lost Joan Rivers at the same time or very closely as well, and that's just two two legendary comics of the old guard who who come from the and what by old guard I mean the the, the guard who just didn't give a fuck, you know. You had jo- I mean Joan Rivers was doing nine eleven gags on you know on the thirteenth of September two thousand and one. Right. Yeah, and that's so important. You know, it's. It's good for laughs, and and here's some symbiosis with heavy metal, just so we're full circle. Uh, yeah. You know, the the willingness to mock and laugh at authority uh, is one of the first steps toward emancipation. And, uh, you know, great comedians like Robin Williams and George Carlin, uh, Joan Rivers, they're able to do it with comedy, and a great heavy metal band, they're able to do it with the force of their music and the forthrightness of their lyrics. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're having fun at the expense of religion. Uh, you know, Metallica has some, some great songs that are very critical of faith-based uh, ideology. And, of course, Slayer has... You know, an entire <laughs> an entire career, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you look at yeah, Leper Messiah. Funnily enough, um, uh, I was watching the TV program recently um, last week tonight, which is the John o- John Oliver thing, which um, uh, is um, uh, it's actually uh, he, he used to be on um, uh, John Stewart's Daily Show, and he's mm-hmm. the, he's the British guy who now's ha- now has his own show. Um, uh, and it's fantastic, absolutely brilliant. And every week they they pick a subject that they're going to pull apart, whether it's um, American football teams threatening to pull out of cities and so they just get money thrown at them, or whether it's the collapsing infrastructure in the States. Or in one case, they, they, they did a whole episode on TV evangelists. Um, oh, and it was just like, wow, you know, it was like... Because as a young kid over here, Leper Messiah was my first introduction to the whole concept of mm-hmm. of people. I mean, you know, you know, religion's just not on TV over here. Still, never mind people on TV saying "send me money" and I'm going to make you better through the, you know, through down your phone line or whatever. And uh, and I watched this program, and it was all about basically how the laws in the states are just exactly the same as they were 20, 30 years ago. Um, and nothing has changed. You've still got these people on TV saying, you know, just send me your money. Yeah, and so many of them are transparently fraudulent. Uh, it's it's a it's a shame that people are so credulous that they send the money. Uh, but there's a there's a pastor named Steve Muncie who is not far from where I live, and I've seen him on TV talking about how 
Uh, well, in 2007, he said it's the year of seven, and the, and the Bible uh, stipulates that anyone who sends money will get it back sevenfold. And then he did it in 2009. It was the year of nine. And then he did it, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like numbers Jesus. appear all over the Bible. If you're clever enough, you could make it work. Yeah, well, uh, pre presumably each page has a number. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, that's another thing that I, you know, that the defiant spirit of, of heavy metal often turns toward uh, organized religion. And yeah. that's another uh, great gift of the genre but it's it's also considered to be quite a conservative genre as well though um you know i i i, I it's it yes there's 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 protest songs and things like that but it's it, it's there's never well there's never real kind of typical protest song you don't get a protest heavy metal song you might get you know something that is uh, has a theme um about something but it's not unlike punk or anything, you know, it it, do, it doesn't do, it's very rare that you'll find a song directly confronting a political issue or a specific issue. Um, uh, and and I, I think that's where the kind of the two, the, the two types of music really differ. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think maybe in, in that sense, uh, heavy metal, heavy metal's rebellion is more personal uh, it's it, like yeah. Kirk Hammett said. It's yeah. about living a life uh, free of dictation and almost a, a libertarian sense. Uh, but yeah, punk is much more political and, and directly addressing the state, uh, directly addressing public policy. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a good distinction you make. Yeah, no, it's 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 always interested me because I'm being a fan of you know a big fan of both um, those particular genres. Um, and there, there is obviously a lot of a lot of comparisons between thrash metal and punk, and I think there, I think there is a big um, crossover there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but funnily enough, going just to go back to Metallica for a while, um, yeah, the the you mentioned earlier that, um, fade to black, and this is something that I, I kind of wanted to mention is that. Um, I mean, I got I got Ride the Lightning. Um, yeah, it hadn't been out long when I got it, and um, and having you know you got into Kill, Kill 'Em All. The difference to, for then getting getting Rain in uh, Rain in Rain in Black, getting <laughs> Ride the Lightning, um, and having things like Fade to Black on there and stuff. It was like wow, you know, it, it's it just opened up a whole new world of fucking hell. This is you know, this is different these guys are really kind of just doing their own thing. Yeah, and, you know, I appreciate that. This is, I had a really interesting exchange with DX Ferris. Uh, people could look that up as well, where we, we discussed the differences between Slayer and Metallica. Yeah, where, and love, uh, where can people uh, find that? Uh, that's on 33sound.com. Uh, they did, that's the, publisher's website for the 33 and a third series and for the rollout of uh, my book on Metallica they did Metallica week so each day of the week there was a different post related to Metallica in the book and uh, I mean I love Slayer I love Motorhead I love ACDC three bands that have essentially followed a formula and released a different version of the same album <laughs> yeah yeah and I love them all, and I, I don't say that disparagingly. But 
I also love a band like Metallica that's willing to explore and experiment. And sometimes it might fall on its face, uh, but sometimes it, it will soar and elevate us all on its coattails. Uh, and I, I think that begins with Fade to Black. So it really, as Ferris and I discussed, it's a difference in philosophy. When you like a band, do you like them because they adhere closely and, and carefully and consistently to a certain style and accept the limitations of that style? Or do you like them because of the human element that they bring when they collaborate creatively and uh, a willingness to ride with them uh, on this particular journey that they're taking? And I have that willingness. I mean, James Hetfield said in when I interviewed him, and it's in the book, how do you know you're not supposed to go somewhere until you get there? And I rather like that. I think that's a, a fine philosophy for uh, any creative endeavor, but also the ongoing experimentation and education of life. Absolutely. And, and, and I think um, uh, you made a really good point earlier about um, about people saying, oh, you know, that there's a big school of thought, but, you know, the, the Black Album is where Metallica sold out, etc., um but as 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 Lars has often said till he's blue in the face over the years mm. se selling out would have been doing justice part 2 selling out would have been just staying in their own little protected um environment where they knew that they could just the next album would be even bigger and they they'd make the next jump in size of venue and and they could literally write out the you know they could write out the checks right now as to you know what what's going to happen for the next few you know over the next couple of years after the next album instead right. instead they went down a route that was hey let's try this and see what happens right and these are these are intelligent men and they're literate men they knew what what people would say and they knew what people were saying i mean was selling out uh collaborating with lou reed to make lulu uh you know, absolutely not. I think as I think Lars is correct. They could, they could have made Ride the Lightning, uh, you know, parts six, seven, eight, and nine, and for, honored people's expectations in that sense. Why is that considered authenticity, but experimentation is considered artificial? I, I think it's mixed up. You know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Look, it just uh, it turns out uh, the thing is that the the, the black album it doesn't sound to most people's ears like the sound of risk. You know, mm -hmm. it sounds like the sound of safety. It sounds like the sound of oh, hang on, this isn't this isn't the band that made Injustice for All, but that that is the risk, right? You know that that is the the they're going they're going out of the comfort zone. They're going out of, on a limb to try and produce something different because, and, and speaking as somebody who's in a band themselves, um, you have to keep things interesting for you. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you have to be, you have to be engaged and interested in what you're doing. Right. You can't, you can't just, you know, just churn something out. Yeah. I mean, typically, when I write, uh, and I've, I've written books about music, but when I 
when I write, I write the book that I want to read. Uh, and that's how I stay engaged in it. And if I'm engaged and I'm uh, passionate and I'm energized and I'm having fun and I'm stimulated while I'm writing it, then I think there's a greater chance that all of those things will transpire for the reader when he or she sits down with the book. Whereas if I'm bored writing it, on some level that's going to express itself to the reader and the reader's going to have a, a boring, mundane experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's like, well, it's the same as, you know, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm, uh, you know, I do comedy and the only way to write comedy is you can only write what makes you laugh. You can only write mm. what you think is funny. You the, the minute you try and try and figure out what other people are going to laugh at, well, you know, that's that's for the birds. That's going to drive you insane. Yeah, you you do what uh you do what you love and do your best with it and hope other people will like it. That's all you can do. I mean, one of my favorite authors, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, once addressed this very topic, and he said, you know, how am I supposed to sit down and write a book and try to imagine what a possible hypothetical audience will think of it when I not only finish writing the book, but when it's in bookstores two to three years from now? Yeah. I mean, like you said, you just drive yourself crazy doing that. So you do what you enjoy, and you try to invest the time, effort, and energy, and labor necessary to do it well, and just hope for the best. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think, it, funnily enough, this brings us right back to a, a point we were talking earlier as well about about the the um, the overall um, impact that the Black Album had. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just it made a few waves in metal circles. I mean, it's to this day. I mean, I, I when when um, uh, the big four were um, were doing their first gigs and when they, they broadcast one um, in cinemas around the world. Um, and I um, uh, I had a friend who was going to come and see uh, come and see it with me and couldn't make it. And another girl um uh, came instead and she's she was basically she liked the black album and that was it and she sat through the whole big four in a, in a cinema purely just waiting for this for for you know for songs from the black album mm-hmm. and she was just like you know anthrax yeah all right megadeth oh god that singer boat looks like he's had a stroke um, <laughs> um slayer mm, yeah i can't really find the beat um, and then, and then, you know, Metallica come on and, and there's like, you know, a few tracks for Black Album and she's just in another world, absolutely loving it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's somebody who would not be, would not go to a metal gig or anything like that, but purely went and sat through all of that thing just because of that album, you know, all yeah. those years later. The Black Album is one of those records. I mean, there's people who... I know people who hate country music, but they own a couple of Johnny Cash records. Yeah. Uh, typically, people who don't like jazz, like Miles Davis. Uh, the Black Album is that cultural touchstone of transcendence uh, for the heavy metal genre. Yeah. And, and your friend is a perfect illustration of that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's amazing. It's it is. I have this test basically, which is um, 
uh, well, it's, 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 it's very easily done. Um, you ask somebody what their favourite Queen song is. And if they, had, if they don't have a favourite Queen song and they don't like Queen, you can pretty much decide that they don't like music. <laughs> and even if they say they do, you've got news for them. They don't. Um, you know, and, and, and pretty much anyone can name a song off the Black Album. You know, and and right. across across so many different um, uh, ages as well, mm-hmm. because it still sounds now. Well, in fact, with with the advent of of, of so many of every album being pro tool to pieces these days, that the black album, it, if, if anything, is sounding better than it ever has now. Yeah, I agree entirely. I did another interview uh, for this for this book recently. And the interviewer told me that he thinks now the Black Album has begun to sound anemic and it needs a remaster. What a dick! <laughs> that was that was my exact reaction. I mean, I just thought that he was fucking insane. Yeah! And I tried to remain polite during the interview, but I, I probably shouldn't have. No, I mean... I just, I couldn't understand where he was coming from not at all it's the other way around everything else is becoming anemic and sounds thin next to the big fat fucking hulking great black album right this juggernaut that comes at you and just you know knocks your entire house down well that thing you mentioned earlier you crank your stereo and put my you know my friend of misery on that fucking thundering bass intro and the drums and then everything Mm. else kicks in christ Jeez, that guy! That guy's got fucking wooden ears. <laughs> right. that, that guy's got wooden ears. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, well, look, dude, it's been an absolute pleasure um, uh, catching up with you. This has been, um, it's been really, really, um, it's been educational. Thank you so much. Oh, no, um, thank you. This was a, uh, this was a great experience. I really enjoyed this interview. I, I would love to do it again in a second if you ever. Yeah, I have another topic that we can explore. Oh, definitely, man. Well, look, yeah, yeah, hey, look, write some more books on metal and get and get your ass back on here, definitely. <laughs> All right, I'll start. Uh, it. I'll start it today. Cool. Yeah, you do that. Yeah. Uh, tell tell your wife you're going to have to cancel a honeymoon. You're going to be busy writing a book. All right, I'll do that. Uh, well, look uh, once again. Um, congratulations. I hope the uh, when when is it? Three weeks. You're um you're getting married. October seventeenth. October seventeenth. Wow. Actually, just that that's kind of that's kind of spooky. What day is October the seventeenth? It's a Saturday. It is a Saturday. On that very day, um I do believe that um uh, my band are gonna be playing um yeah, we're playing Belfast that day. So um I will try and do a shout out and uh, and, and do a song for you. I'm going on the road for the first time in twenty five years, dug up my old um uh, my old thrash band, and um, unfortunately, um, the original members couldn't make it, so we rebooted it. And um, funnily enough, we put a, we put a pink album out in 1990. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it, well, it, what's the what's the band's name? I want to check it out. All right, we're called Acid Rain, but the rain was spelled R E I G N. Okay. But if you go to acidrain.co.uk, that's pretty much everything in a in a nutshell, right there. Spectacular. Well, I'm going to check out Acid Rain. Thank cool, man. Know. And then and then a 33 and a third book on the pink album instead of the black album, and we've got a deal. Oh, yeah, that'll be the next <laughs> one. 
Cool. All right, look, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I wish you all the best with the um, uh, with the wedding. Hope it all goes well. And um, uh, look, yeah, you know, you're welcome back anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, thank you for taking the time out to have a chat. All right, well, thank you. Good luck, and I hope you blow Belfast's doors down. <laughs> cool, me too. Thanks a lot, man. Bye, Howard. Take care. Bye-bye. So there you go, folks. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think you can tell we both had a blast. Um, it was, I, I, you know, I sense DX and um, and David coming back on the show at some point because um, just fascinating guys. Um, so much knowledge and um, uh, and hard work and insight. Uh, basically, all the things that I don't do, like the hard work and the research and everything. Um, that's why I, I think that's why I've got such an admiration for writers and why I like doing the writers' podcasts as well. Um, and I know you guys like listening as well because you 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 do come back in your droves. And I think I think it's really interesting to hear to hear from these guys um, because all you normally get is 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 their writing, you know. Um, and it's nice to hear what goes on behind and uh, and and everything else, and and maybe little bits and pieces and little anecdotes that don't make it to final articles or final books. And uh, anyway, I, I'm rambling here. I need to do I need to do the housekeeping, and and that is is um, 333sound.com. That's the, the digits three, not the word three. 333sound.com is the official um, website. It's part of Bloomsbury Publishing. That's where you get the books. Well, you can go to uh, Amazon, obviously. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it, I, it, it's it, they. I'm, I'm going to be heading down there and getting the book. And as I said earlier, and just in case you missed it, you can also get David at davidmaschiotra.com and facebook.com forward slash david.maschiotra. Um, I hope I'm really not making a mess of the pronunciation of his name there. I probably should have checked with him before um, before I did that. So, Dave, if you're listening and I've made a mess of it, my apologies, mate. We'll make up for it next time. Um, so there you go, folks. You probably noticed my voice is a little deeper, a little croakier. That's because I've done half of the Acid Rain tour dates. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fucking amazing. But this podcast is not about me. It's about the writers and it's about their hard work. So... Um, I just wanted to explain why I might sound a little bit more sexy than normal, okay, kids? So, anyway, that's my uh, that's my philanthropy impression. That, yeah, man, everything. I just get up there man, and get him, uh, give him my fucking all. There you go. That's a quick... Um a uh, quick day at Phil Anselmo impression there, especially for Chuck of the Mel Sox podcast, who does them much better than me. So anyway, um, enough babbling. Um, thank you very much to David for doing the podcast. That was awesome. Thank you very much to you for listening. Um, we will be back. Service will be resumed. Normal service will be resumed. Uh, a little teaser for this month's podcast. It's going to be old school and it's going to be new school. Old school meets new school. A A, a bit of a thrash legend. Um, not mainstream thrash legend, but a thrash ne- legend nonetheless, and a, and a new school band on, um, and pretty obvious who they are if you know who we've been playing with. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you very much to David for the uh, for the awesome interview. Thank you very much to you for being awesome for listening. That's another Bolo cast. Thank you very much. No music to play you out. Just pure and simple. Good vibes. Hope you're all well. Look forward to um, catching up with you again next month. Thanks a lot. Take care. Keep tuning in. Keep downloading. It's fucking awesome. Love it. Keep it metal. Keep it secret. Keep it safe.